Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week I am joined by Nick Taylor and Sahil Dutta to discuss their book, Unprecedented? How COVID-19 Revealed the Politics of Our Economy. So we discuss the politics behind the economics of the COVID pandemic, from debt to care to the labour market, and how the pandemic and the current cost of living crises are likely to reshape the world and our politics moving forward. As always, a big thank you to all of our patrons who make the show possible. Please do consider signing up to become a patron. We are at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. And if you want to support the show in another way, please consider sharing this episode or any other episodes that you've enjoyed on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And now a word from our sponsor. The Left Book Club is a not-for-profit subscription book club. It's an affordable way to get a carefully chosen list of inspiring books that explore radical alternatives to the current crises of capitalism. Each book is printed in a unique edition and you can choose between 6 or 12 books a year. I personally really enjoy receiving the exciting and eclectic mix of books that Left Book Club publishes. Plus, there's access to author events and discounts from publishers, including Pluto Press and Tribune magazine. A World to Win listeners can get their first month subscription for free by going to leftbookclub.com slash member and using the code WINFREE, that's WINFREE in all caps, at checkout. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week I'm here with Sahil Dutta and Nick Taylor to talk about their book, Unprecedented, How COVID-19 Revealed the Politics of Our Economy. It's a great book and we'll put a link um, for you to be able to purchase it in the description. Let's start with the title, guys. I want to know why you've gone with, because it's actually, I, I, I said unprecedented, but that's actually unprecedented. Why the question mark? Yes, great question. Thank you very much for having us, Grace. I'm I'm glad that you spotted the question mark. We usually have to point it out. (laughs) It's because we, of course, there were many unique aspects of this crisis. You know, never before had a public health emergency forced the state, forced policymakers to intervene so forcefully, especially to suspend economic activity or to to kind of act so decisively in this context. And this was a deliberate shutting down of huge swathes of the economy, workplaces, borders, schools, offices, and campuses. And and these lockdowns were, were totally unprecedented. But of course, the pandemic was structured and, I guess, shaped the character of the crisis or emergency was shaped by existing policies politics and institutions that preceded it. And so a lot of what the book is about is this this collision between the unprecedented and the precedented. And we were interested in exploring the nature of those policies and politics and institutions that preceded the crisis that happened to, to kind of shape it. And we go with one of these these metaphors in the book of the photosynthetic, which we found very useful to explaining this this relationship between precedented and unprecedented. The pandemic both illuminated as well as fed 
particular conflicts and and pathologies and inequalities in the economy. And, and in that regard, it was kind of photosynthetic, as the metaphor goes. Yeah, I guess like it's a a basic principle of critical engagement with the economy is that what we have um, relates to what has been. And so things things are evolutionary. Um, and so whatever is the current crisis or current issue, part of the purpose of critical reflections to see what has led previously to this moment and how is this moment being shaped by things that have have gone on in the past and that means that there will be you know unequal outcomes there'll be particular things policymakers can do and particular things they can't Um, and so that sense of the pathologies of British capitalism in in a sense would be completely involved in the way that we experienced um, COVID and its fallout. One of the reasons I thought the book was really interesting and really well-timed was because it really pushes back against this narrative that you saw everywhere, particularly at the kind of start and in the middle of the pandemic, which was that the state was back during COVID um, as if it had ever gone away. And therefore, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders and all the socialists around the world have gotten what they wanted. And we're slipping headfirst into world socialism because the state is doing more stuff. But you do a really good job of kind of elucidating that, as you say, it's the politics of state spending and of intervention that matters much more than the kind of, you know, scale of uh, spending as a proportion of GDP or whatever. And you do a really good job of kind of pulling out the interests that were actually served by state intervention during the pandemic and indeed since then. And I'm wondering if you guys can um, both speak to what those interests were and what they got out of, in inverted commas, larger state? Yeah, so this is a great question. And I think, of course, in in certain ways, the state was extremely present during the crisis and uh, initiating certain unprecedented policies like the furlough scheme and other things. One thing that maybe Sahil can talk to more in a second is, of course, that the 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 big bad socialist state was actually underpinned by the central bank and the action of the central bank, which is not notably a socialist organization. And so the return of a large state was um, fundamentally underpinned by that institution. But more specifically, yeah, Grace, as you were saying, we we note how particular actors were able to essentially feed off of the state and the the growing balance sheet of the sovereign state, not least in part by positioning themselves close to the Conservative Party. So you can think of the VIP lane and all of the contracts that were given out to these kind of uh, rentier figures and rentier companies as as we uh labeled them and this was in in some ways precedented again this there's this relationship between the precedented and the unprecedented here in some ways precedented insofar as we've seen this hugely expanding public services industry made up of firms large multinational firms although often headquartered in london or the uk whose business model is essentially to win public service contracts for delivery of public services, um, sometimes uh, contracting these out to a a series of subcontractors, 
generally um, availing themselves of all responsibility when things go wrong, but sucking money out of the state. And there's there are a few different people who have spoken to these, notably Brett Christopher's in in his um, recent book. I think he calls them contract rentiers. And so the growing state was also feeding a series of these contractors. And we saw millions, if not billions, uh, in many cases, billions, especially in the test and trace scheme, going to these contractors, whether they were uh, people like Serco or companies like um, the large accountancy companies who were supposed to be managing them and often failing to deliver the the service that they had been contracted for, nevertheless skimming off huge amounts of money. So it's it's rather misleading, I think, to identify this as the return of some mega socialist state, although you know, we did hope that certain aspects of this in enlarged state spending might speak to the future in terms of overcoming this perennial austerity that has characterized over the uh, more than la- the last decade. Sahil, I don't, um, maybe you want to talk to the, the particular uh, kind of central bank aspects of this. Yeah, cheers. Just a couple of things to pick up on is that it is like we're saying with the precedented and the clashing with the unprecedented. With companies like Circo, etc., these are companies who have been dealing with and making money from the state for a long, long time. Circo started out assisting the MOD um, and was a defense contractor for a long time. That's how it sort of accessed the state and instituted itself around making money through providing, dealing with, contracting with the state. And so when that process kind of coalesces over a number of years and then COVID hits, you see that the state has nowhere else to turn to. It lacks the capacity to deliver public public services outside of these contract rentiers as, as Christopher's calls them or, or public services companies. But these are the these are the instruments which deliver public policy. And so I think getting this sense that it is conceptually impossible to separate what we might distinguish as market from state um, and, and really how COVID was the manifestation of that impossibility and how completely um, dependent both the state is on these private companies and how these private companies' revenues is dependent on, on state contracts. And so that's one aspect of it. And then, yes, like, like Nick was saying, the, the central banking aspect where we see the arsenal of monetary policy can be unleashed to deliver stability and in the end like it's quite remarkable how stable financial markets were in the teeth of covid of the covid crisis in that despite the lurches and the um around money markets things did not go the way of 2008 and that's because the central bank stepped in to basically put a floor under the prices of financial assets and that is a the thing that i find quite interesting is how stability is predicated on reproducing these very um, deep inequities, and particularly between those who can access assets and own assets and those who can't. And so there's something you know, I know you've worked on, Grace, and, and both Nick and I mm. have as well. It's just this K-shaped economy, in a sense, between the, the asset owners and those, those without. And how even something like the central bank, which is 
very keen to present itself as a as a wholly technocratic, apolitical institution making apolitical interventions. In trying to do that, will reproduce highly politicized and, in, and unequal outcomes. And that's, I, I guess, another thing that we're interested in 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 looking at is how the how the institutions of politics, even without explicitly being political, will deliver highly politicised uh, um, outcomes. Mm. So you've mentioned it like somewhat already, this idea of the pandemic having a photosynthetic function and the ways in which the spread of and response to the virus has kind of illuminated and reinforced existing inequalities. And that speaks to that metaphor of the kind of K-shaped recovery as well. Can you speak a little more about what this means, the idea of a kind of photosynthetic function, because it's quite a unique concept and I quite liked it as a metaphor. And yeah, just, you know, some of the ways in which those inequalities have manifested themselves. Well, the way that we approached the book was that we looked at various different kind of empirical realms, each using our our research expertises. So we looked at the, the kind of nature of public and private finance, at work in the labour market, at bordering and surveillance infrastructure, and at education. Perhaps to give an example of the the um, photosynthetic in, in terms of work in the labour market, what we saw was that obviously this was a realm that was highly disrupted and in many ways the nature of work was reorganized revalued through the pandemic but the pandemic created a set of conditions that revealed existing inequalities especially in regard to one's position within the UK flexible labor market and we we um explored the background to this flexible labor market but during the pandemic you know who was a key worker what sort of key worker they were who could work from home who was most exposed to the virus who had to take on extra caring burdens and so on um flexibility and, and the flexible labor market the kind of guiding logic to our labor market shaped the experience of these different groups of people very differently and essentially the argument is that flexibility on the one hand was supposed to have delivered record employment a dynamic economy in which employers were not burdened by regulation or the responsibility of employment protection and so on but in actual fact what it delivered was an economy built on stagnating wages large scale precarity and very low uh, levels of personal and social resources that could be called upon. And so going into the pandemic with these kinds of inequalities that the flexible labour market had shaped meant that the nature of this work was kind of illuminated. So frontline or key workers, which became a, a kind of a special category that encompassed not just health workers, but also those jobs that are usually considered as unskilled, like delivery drivers, cleaners, and supermarket workers. The nature of this work uh, and the value of it was illuminated, but so was the, the sheer precarity and the vulnerabilities that these workers uh, were exposed to. And 
of course, this was then reflected in the mortality statistics. So these have now confirmed that in the most deprived areas, in working class occupations, and in sectors of the economy characterized by insecure work, the COVID death rate was significantly higher. So that's just kind of one set of examples, if you like, of how this photosynthetic or how the pandemic acted as a kind of photosynthetic. um, I just want to quickly draw out because I don't think we actually defined it yet, that the whole idea of like the photosynthetic function is both shining a light on the inequality and making it grow in case that wasn't clear from because I don't think we gave the definition. Yeah, because I was initially when I read that like, oh, this is interesting. What does this mean? And was then like, ah, okay, yeah, that's it. (laughs) Yeah, go back to your GCSE biology (laughs) kind of thing. Yeah, Um, (laughs) which I I hesitate to add is not our research expertise. (laughs) Yeah, I guess one quick example of how the the photosynthetic effect of shining a light and making something grow was a good example was on house prices through the COVID-19 period particularly of the shutdown where by definition everything else was stagnating or getting worse and yet UK house prices were growing 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 um, to reach you know as every month seems to be a record level and that was a real clear demonstration of just how how deeply embedded that that dependence on house price growth is to the UK political economic system. And speaking of the household, because this is kind of quite an important unit of analysis in your, well, it's a a very important unit of analysis in kind of neoclassical economics and the management of the economy um, by various state institutions. But you kind of pull out what it means to have this kind of renewed dependence or enhanced dependence on the household. And point to another really interesting metaphor, which is that there are these wells that sustain capitalism during moments of crisis, but that those wells are obviously unequal in the sense that certain kinds of people contribute to them and certain kinds of people draw on them. Um, So can you both talk a little bit about what that means and how it manifested itself during the crisis? Yeah, so again, it's important to point that these are things that capitalism always depends on, and it just gets really exposed during moments of crisis. But we know that the household and what it gets called um, social reproduction is a crucial source of social stability, social flourishing, and indeed like prof- profiteering. So the ability to look after and care wa- care for one another allows people to enter the formal market workplace and for their work to produce yeah, produce value and for that value to be appropriated, um, if that's how we think of these things. And so one of the things that we're interested in looking at is how clearly exposed our utter dependence was upon each other during that moment of shutdown and how in the household space we saw there is so much work that gets done by yeah by in the domestic sphere largely um, almost overwhelmingly by women workers and how this was really revealed during during this moment and it forced a certain level of I guess empathy and recognition for the work that happens in these spaces and whether it's directly in the home or things that are ancillary to it so the clap for carers thing was a was at least a moment where we recognise that this work is utterly crucial and we are entirely dependent on it um, and it should be valued in some way. I, ideally, it would be valued in more than just claps. 
Yeah, and and I guess to to kind of speak to these uh, these deep wells of of debt, um, as we call them, um, more broadly, these were drawn upon in the crisis in order to sustain the economy in some way, and we identify two different kinds of wells of debt that sustain the economy. One that we've already talked about, which is the the balance sheet of the sovereign state, and the the other, as Sahil was just talking about, the largely unmonetized obligations and and the labor of care. And we refer to these resources as wells to highlight the fact that they are largely invisible or, or hidden either within the space of the household or in in the kind of spaces of high finance and are or are assumed to be inexhaustible and the interesting thing that we tried to present about these wells of debt is that the balance sheet of the sovereign state is typically presented as extremely finite uh, um, you know there's only so much that we can do we need to if if we're going to spend more then it's going to put debt on our on future generations we'll need to raise taxes etc cetera, etc cetera. and the reality is quite the opposite that the, this deep well of debt for, of the balance sheet of the sovereign state was far deeper than has been acknowledged certainly in the last decade or so and exactly the opposite applies to the the obligations and the debt of care, which is that this is a kind of activity, a labor that has typically been seen as inexhaustible. We can always rely on pushing responsibilities for the reproduction, everyday reproduction or reproduction of future generations in terms of childcare onto uh, the household. And, you know, we even saw this in the form of a, a a specific state strategy following the financial crisis, the big society. So this this kind of privatization of of care and social reproduction within the household is typically seen as uh, a resource that is inexhaustible, whereas in fact, of course, it is highly exhaustible. People burn out. They can't work and care at the same time. It's becoming increasingly difficult. And so we we look at the the kind of the contradictory relationship uh, between these wells of debt that were drawn upon in crisis. And it's important to say that a lot of these, because the realms of care work have often historically been associated with um, women labour, this is work that has been either completely unpaid or now, even when it takes place in the market sphere, like in a, a, a paid care worker, they're hugely underpaid and so trying to just keep that in mind the difficulty of placing proper value in this realm of work means that the workers who provide it um, are hugely under-resourced and the sectors as a whole are under-resourced which means that both the givers and receivers of care are both losing out and the sector isn't being isn't functioning as, as well as it should. That kind of brings us nicely on to a set of questions I've got for both of you about the chapters that you wrote specifically in this book, which is a kind of collection of chapters written on various different elements of the pandemic and the recovery. And I think a really interesting range of contributions. And um, Sahil, you worked particularly on 
these questions around leverage and debt and the role of the central bank and Nick on the labor market. So I'm going to ask you, Sahil, a few questions on that and then come to you, Nick. There was one quote I pulled out here, which I think neatly summarized some of these questions that you were trying to answer, Sahil, which was that, so debts guaranteed by the state kept the economy going through the pandemic. But this came on the back of already unprecedented interventions to keep a pyramid of obligations from collapsing. So that idea that, you know, this network or hierarchy of debts is kind of akin to a pyramid scheme of the kind that we've uh, recently seen collapse in the crypto market is an interesting one. But what happened during the early stages of the pandemic to disrupt the debt-based economy? And how did central bank interventions prevent this pyramid of obligations from collapsing? So the reason why we use this uh, idea of the pyramid um, or the Ponzi is just a, a sort of a, an empirical recognition that a lot of our debt repayments are covered by taking on more debt. And so the UK economy as a whole is highly indebted. So if you aggregate all of our different kind of from households to to local government, to government, to big corporations, to small corporations, everybody collectively uh, in aggregate is in a lot of debt. I think the figure is 473% of GDP. So that gives a sense that this is an economy that relies on being in debt. And in a situation like that, it's very important that people continue to believe that their debts will be repaid at some point down the down in the future. Um, and in that sense that you can always borrow more money to re- make your next repayment. And in that sense, defer the final settlement of any debt. It's just you could keep on kind of keeping the show rolling on. And in moments of crisis, what happened was that people no longer felt able or as trusting of the idea that they'll be able to just borrow more money to make their next payment. And so you saw in financial markets a flight to safety or what became a dash for cash and that people wanted to not hold a financial asset but wanted to hold actual cash in their hand so that if someone else asked them to repay, they'd have the cash in order to do so. And to do that means you effectively liquidate your assets. You sell your financial assets and get cash instead of them. And if you have a mass selling off of financial assets asset prices collapse and so there was a moment in march 2020 where initially financial markets moved towards safe assets to hold so u.s treasuries uk government bonds the gilt market and that seemed to be enough like we would just get ourselves safe government bonds and if we then need to sell those to get cash we we know it'll be fine so that'll be that'll be okay But even then, government bonds were no longer deemed safe enough. And people didn't want to hold US treasuries. They didn't want to hold UK gilts, but wanted actual cash instead. Um, And at that moment, if you have a mass selling off of the safest assets in financial markets, which are are government bonds, then you risk a full liquidity freeze akin to 2008. And so learning from that crisis of the past, central banks, just came in and, and made a promise to buy government bonds indefinitely. So the US Fed and the Bank of England, um, through its asset, asset purchase program, bought up huge volumes of government debt, of, um, in, the, in the Bank of England's case, UK 
um, guilt. Uh, and in, in doing that, you put a floor under the price of them. And then you know if you're holding a government bond, you've always got the, the central bank to sell it to. You should always be able to get cash if you need to. And therefore, you kind of don't need to worry anymore. Um, and it's quite a tricky kind of mechanism to explain out. But it's when the government, when the central bank makes that ultimate promise that they will buy whatever financial asset you're holding, in this case, UK gilts, then you no longer need to worry about the price of that asset collapsing. And that helps to sustain the entire yeah, pyramid of, of promises. because You've got this one to ground it all. Not everyone has that peace of mind available to them, do they? And this is, I think, what you draw out really well, which is this idea of the kind of political economy of leverage. Who has access to, um, you know, who basically is able to rely on the fact that they'll always be rescued and who's basically on their own. So can you talk a little bit about that and how it's actually contributed to this K-shaped recovery? Yeah, so the interesting thing is that if you've got a system of intervention that is wholly directed around price financial assets, there are not that many people who are asset owners, despite the kind of impression that it's a common economy that we all kind of meet equally. The economy is, doesn't really exist. There are, there are, we, we relate to it very differently from depending on who we are and where we are, um, et cetera. And all those differences really matter. And so when you've got a, the kind of interventionary tools that a central bank offers is very effective at upholding, sustaining, growing the price of financial assets, but just not that many people have access to it. And so another of the things that we try to point out with this, this notion of leverage, which are that there are other people like Stefano Scambati, Sam Naffo's work, who are all kind of interested in in this question of leverage is that some of the biggest debtors are those who then can access the power of the state. And so one of the great forms of financial power is if you can be if you are borrowing in order to acquire assets, that's a really powerful form of um of, of, of financial social relationships. Whereas for the majority, we borrow to make payments and make basic payments. And it's the that that latter group that see very little support from the infrastructure of monetary governance compared to the former who are able to leverage massively, i.e. borrow a lot, acquire big assets, use those rising prices of assets to borrow more. And the stability of the whole system relies on those asset prices never collapsing, which is why you see uh, the central bank intervening to support asset prices, but not supporting, I guess, like the common economy as a whole. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing this really powerfully at the moment, right? Because we've had these massive interventions from the central bank over the course of the last few years where, you know, massive businesses, financial institutions have been bailed out, basically. And now we're seeing this cost of living crisis driven largely by kind of like global macroeconomic dynamics that central banks are responding to by saying, oh, well, well, the only thing we can do is raise interest rates, even though we know it largely won't deal with the underlying issues of rising uh, fuel costs, supply chain issues, but will instead kind of engineer a recession, which will hopefully bring down inflation based on this consignment that the that all central banks have really had ever since the 1970s, um, where you know it's up to them to deal with inflation and the only way to deal with inflation is to kind of fiddle around with interest rates which deal with a certain set of issues around demand but can't really speak to these issues that we're seeing around supply and 
the governor of the Bank of England also saying, don't ask for wage increases. So you're going to get potentially rising interest rates, which are going to particularly punish debtors with unsecured shorter term debts and the Bank of England discouraging workers from having any increase in wages. The impact of central bank policy, when we look back over the last several years, is clearly going to have been just extraordinarily political and have driven these really big increases in inequality. Are we going to continue to see a kind of politicization of the central bank? And what do you think the result of that is going to be? Yeah, it's a really good question, because I think we have seen um, central banks, their purpose, their mandate, be under more scrutiny, um, really since 2008, because central banks have become this the dominant governing institution, or the dominant um, institution of economic governance, at least. Um, and there is, I think it's right to draw attention as to what are the political consequences of central banking and whether we should continue this this sort of performative pretense that they are wholly technocratic institutions. They are making credit policy decisions in the way that they do their asset purchase programs. They're making credit policy um, impacts in, like you said, with the the raising of interest rates at this moment. It might do something to uh, support the exchange rate and somehow maybe keep some of our imports slightly lower. But they're basically making no impact on on the cost of living crisis other than this, again, this performance of saying that workers should bear the burden of the cost. And so I think there is a moment to ask, um, particularly from communities that are out and, and activist groups that are outside of the so-called professional political parties or the, the the established political parties to ask what is the purpose of the central bank mandate uh, and can it be repurposed and should it be in, investigated only to bring it in line with the empirical reality that mm. they, which is that they're clearly political um, and so this this strange um, cognitive dissonance we do where we constantly speak about central banking as a as a wholly uh, depoliticized affair seems misleading. Um, Right, we're going to move on to Nick now and talk a little bit about the labour market. So Nick, how did this narrative of flexibility reinforce pre-existing inequalities over the course of the pandemic in the labour market? Um, Yeah, so this is a case of the, the kind of background conditions, the precedented aspects of the UK economy, really baking in a series of vulnerabilities to the labour market um, for some. And at the heart of this this model is a very contradictory and often elusive promise around flexibility. As I mentioned, it it was the flexible labour market is supposed to have delivered record employment rates, um, but it came at the cost of insecurity and inequality. And so Generally, what we find when we look under the bonnet of f- the flexibility mobile, or that's a very bad metaphor, but um, it, what we find is that there was flexibility for some and, and flexible insecurity for others. And this flexibility is really defined by employer discretion. So that is the discretion to set wages, to manage workers as they wish, to hire and refire and sorry, fire and rehire. 
and we've seen a lot of uh, this during the pandemic still, even the extraordinary uh, state interventions in the labour market, like furlough, were characterised by this employer discretion. It was up to the employer whether they applied to furlough, whether they topped up wages and so on. So the the labour market was characterised by this hyper-flexibilised workforce, uh, which was contributing to low productivity, low skill sectors, insecurity and poor pay. And of course, this was this was highly prevalent in areas of the workforce like the gig economy, which has been growing, but also it characterized some of the very sectors that were hit the hardest by the pandemic. So, um, you know, retail, for example, hospitality. And it also characterized those sectors that we relied upon so, so dearly in the pandemic. So health and social care, 42% of the uh, workers in domiciliary care were on zero hours contracts. So this this flexibility was really exposed in, in the pandemic and it ran up very hard against the social value that we were um, putting on some of the, the most hyper-flexibilized um, forms of work. It was also disrupted though in really interesting ways. Especially around the furlough scheme, but also working from home, and we're we're continuing to see the the legacy of that. You've also got this point about how and it's linked to this question around flexibility and flexibility for who, but that the UK labour market is actually characterised by employer discretion. Um, so employers are the ones that have really the kind of you know we know this already, but most of the control, most of the power in this relationship, and that really under underpins these inequalities when it comes to flexibility but it also raises an important point which is becoming a really key political issue now about what is actually driving inflation in the cost of living crisis today uh, because there's this easy narrative that many on the right and indeed some people in the Labour Party are now drawing on which is that yes of course prices are being driven up by things that are going on in the global economy but we need to make sure we avoid a wage price spiral with employees demanding wage increases in line with inflation that then make that inflation self-reinforcing. And that's what we're in danger of seeing today, which is why the government of the Bank of England saying, don't ask for wage increases. To what extent is that true? And how are these questions around power, you know, that they're basically avoided, aren't they, in uh, the the mainstream understanding of of what is driving inflation? And yeah, just what do you think about that, basically? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, great, great questions. Uh, and very diplomatic, not to mention the the origins of the wage price spiral comments <laughs> in the Labour Party. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this this partly comes back to what uh, Sahil was talking about earlier. And you, well, what both of you were talking about earlier, that inflation is always seen as this thing that comes about because of wage demands or overspending of the state and it's never to do with you know the particular firms like price gouging and and taking advantage or it's not to do with supply chains global supply chains or it's not to do with energy prices and so on and i think that this it's kind of farcical that we're talking about suppressing wage demands to control inflation. I understand that 
what most of these commentators mean is that it's you know maybe higher paid workers demanding bonuses that they're they're talking about but the reality is that hiking up interest rates will hurt um the the lowest paid workers probably the worst and it's it's farcical because there's been an, an absolutely historic stagnation in wages over more than the last decade and that was part of the the post financial crisis model was to suppress especially public sector wage demands while catering to this asset based economy we should also remember that this has very deep uh, and devastating effects on the social security system so uh, the people were going into this pandemic extremely exposed in that regard the real level of basic unemployment benefit in 2019-2020 was lower than it was 30 years previously and now with inflation running at 9% and the you know the benefit uprating only working at 3% you have a huge gap which is driving this cost of living crisis even further and i think that you know i find it very frustrating when i listened to the other day i think it was damian green mp saying well we can't afford the 8 to 10 billion to mitigate this um energy cost crisis and people who are in absolute poverty because of this because we'd have to raise taxes first and of course you know my my response is well I've got like 412 billion Bank of England funded reasons why that's absolutely wrong. And and there's no reason why we can't address these things and and why it would not lead to a better economy and society. So one other thing that I wanted to ask that kind of feeds into both your chapters and the argument of the book as a whole is this idea of a kind of crisis of space. And I think that comes through in the chapter on Rantier nationalism, which I thought was really interesting, but also in both of your chapters. And Nick, you have this idea that actually there are some changes in the labour market that took place during the pandemic that are linked to a crisis of space. So can you talk a little bit about what that means? I guess this comes back to the the, the household as a kind of pivotal node in our economic system and an, an increasingly pivotal one. One of the things that has been truly unprecedented is the huge wave of people suddenly um, and to this day working from home. And of course, how that has been experienced depends very much on the kind of space that you have at home to work within. So again, this is an instance in which those who own their house, who have more space at home for a home office, who are not burdened by caring responsibilities will have experienced um, the pandemic fundamentally differently to those who were, you know, working from the kitchen table, had those caring responsibilities, didn't have access to a garden and so on and so forth. And so this is an aspect of the pandemic that I think uh, has endured specifically in relation to, to working from home in surveys, 90% of people say that they want to continue much more uh, working from home. And of this, this runs contrary to what employers want, who generally wanting more people back in the office. 
And um, in some ways, this is this is politicized that element of flexibility that I was talking about that was always much more on the employer side. And I think it will be interesting going forwards, looking at how how this maybe has some rebalancing effect on who has control over the flexibility, you know, when to work, where to work. But we should remember that around about two thirds of working class people are just shut out of these forms of flexibility that might be offered in contracts, you know, requesting flexi time or part time or control over their hours. So the experiences have been fundamentally different and and the home has been central to how that experience has been shaped, including with, of course, the, the virus itself. You know, if you have a big enough home, you can shield from others within the household. And we saw the virus rip through multi-generational households that, that were living in cramped housing. And we saw uh, you know, a much greater effect on mental health on those who were living in poor housing. So this has been a, a kind of fundamental fault line, I think, and will be so going forward. That brings me nicely to the last question I have for both of you, which is what you're both thinking, looking ahead um, when it comes to kind of extrapolating from the position that we found ourselves in, in the wake of the pandemic and what that's going to look like as we go through now another crisis and what might actually end up being an even deeper crisis is the cost of living crisis. And also linked to that, you've both, you know, the whole idea of the book, this idea of kind of the politics of the economy is going to be really important, I think, moving forward, because we continue to see mainstream commentators talk about what is going on in terms of, you know, whether it's the cost of living crisis, the impact of the pandemic, even, you know, war and conflict and all of these things in very like technocratic and apolitical terms. And yet there is still this sense, I think, uh, the general kind of inchoate sense that some people have benefited from this crisis more than others, and that some people are paying the costs much more than others. And the worrying thing, I think, is that unless we're actually able to kind of expose the real politics of the like the pandemic, the interventions, and, and what's going on now with the cost of living crisis, it becomes very easy to find kind of scapegoats and people to blame who actually have you know nothing to do with it, whether that's kind of the politics of xenophobia or like blaming, you know, lazy benefit scroungers or whatever we end up seeing. So what do you think is going to happen moving forward? And how can we try to expose the politics behind the economy or behind, you know, macroeconomic interventions and thereby encourage organisation among those interest groups that are being differently affected in order to I suppose, build a kind of counter politics that can push back against some of those pressures. It's a very big question, but we've got, you know, a few minutes for you both to answer that when it comes to both of your uh, your areas of expertise. <laughs> so I think that the, the general context is that in an age of stagnation, which is where we, where we are, um, and all of these crises are taking place in that general context of stagnation, the question of the politics of, uh, of the economy in its broadest sense is one of distributional struggle. And traditionally, and you see this very much with this iteration of the Labour Party, but historically for a long time, is that growth can be our way to dissolve that conflict. And so 
if we if we can generate growth, then we almost don't have to make the difficult decisions over over how we you know distribute wealth and income in in the country and beyond. And so this centering of growth all the time, um, I think we should be wary of because it is precisely as a tool of depoliticizing in a way. If you can grow, you don't have to address head on the politics of, of distributional conflict. Um, and it's something that I don't think the right really do. I think the right are, are, are more clear about saying there are some who are deserving and some who are undeserving. Um, and it's something that uh, I think we might need to, <laughs> I guess, articulate from a progressive sense. Um in a slightly more so, and, and I think that really over the the next sort of few few years and the, the period of the, the cost of living crisis, I think we're gonna, we are seeing that question over who will pay is really present. I think the the complete resistance to something as benign as a windfall tax is manifestation of just how how seriously that distributional politics is being taken. So that's that's one thing in terms of what might be our way of building forward in that context. Something that both in this conversation and in the book and, and, in, and, and in Nick and I's work more generally is there is something important and specific about this broadly conceived care economy. And there are things about it that are the basis of social solidarity, often across generational lines, completely across yeah, racialized lines and gendered lines. As it happens, sometimes those racial differences, often those racial differences are used to help to lower the the working um, conditions of care workers who are traditionally um, migrant women workers and women and workers of color but I think there is there is a basis for a solidaristic social engagement in in the care economy that needs to be really focused on and I sometimes have a frustration that a lot of the conversation of left finance wonks is very into you know central banking into the repo market all the all the kind of stuff that is very technical and the conversations of the care economy are completely ejected from that and that's uh, in in a way almost reproducing the lie of neoclassical economics which is to kind of uh, expel the 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 care sector altogether so well it's reproducing a a hierarchy um that exists not just within those academic spheres but within society as a whole whereby the worlds of money and inverted commas economics are seen as you know good and rational and interesting and important and the world of care and relationships and you know that kind of interpersonal in inverted commas unskilled labor is devalued and I suppose we all kind of reproduce those hierarchies even unconsciously on the left within our own work a lot of the time don't we absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely and so some some a conscious effort to bring those two different realms of valuation together um, I think is going to be really essential for how we how we try to navigate what is a, a you know a very bleak period of of politics the effort in in building back better is overwhelmingly focused on re-kick, what has been overwhelmingly focused on re-kick-starting growth on the kind of big, glitzy projects, gigafactories, uh, free ports, uh, uh, and so on. And yeah, what what we're saying is that the the pandemic really showed us that the, the social infrastructure, these interpersonal relationships that we've been talking about, are really essential and 
drastically undervalued. And uh, of course, at some level, this happens within communities in quite organic ways. You know, you'll remember the WhatsApp groups, the street WhatsApp groups that mutual aid uh, supporting each other to buy stuff from the pharmacy and so on and leaving it at at each other's doorsteps. But of course, there is a role for policy here, absolutely. And I think it needs to focus on the resources that are important to this social infrastructure. And these don't always fit very well with the focus on growth and productivity and kickstarting those. For example, you can't really make caring work better by trying to improve its productivity you can't be like care faster care faster that that tends to erode the the value of um, care so the question of time poverty is really important here I think the focusing on innovative ways to redistribute organize and deliver care that prioritize the time that it needs is really important and it's it's very heartening that we're seeing this renewed focus on the four-day week and a series of pilots around that in, in Scotland and elsewhere. And of course, there's there's an environmental value to this as well, insofar as the sectors of the economy that underpin our social infrastructure tend to be those that are not as materially impactful or harmful to the environment. And so there's a place here for the care economy to be front and central in a kind of just transition, essentially, that's prioritizing democracy and the relationships that sustain care rather than efficiency, productivity and and, and financial return. Um, because, of course, there is a danger that if we just pump money into the existing care sector, we're pumping it into a sector that is increasingly characterized by you know ownership of care homes by large private equity firms and that's not what we want so it's not just about the money it's about a kind of rethinking of these social infrastructures how they work and who they work for right that is all we have time for today thank you both so much for talking to me about your excellent book and as i've said readers can find a link to purchase that in the description to this episode thanks so much sahil and nick it was great to have you on the show pleasure to be here thank you thank you very much grace